Hello, once again, welcome to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk. I'm your co-host, Jackson Nefflin. Thank you for joining us for issue five of our comics bracket. This week, we will be discussing 1990s Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, as well as 1997's Spawn. So we're going to structure this a little bit differently. Spawn has a lot of triggers in it, so we're going to not talk about it at all until we get there. We'll leave a little bit of a break to let you know that that's happening. With that out of the way, let's go ahead and do TMNT. Sure. Intrepid reporter April O'Neil reports on a crime wave, only to be mugged herself, but the lights go out and she's rescued in the shadows. Unbeknownst to her, her rescuers were four turtles, mutated by an unknown science, trained as ninja by their rat master, Splinter, and now grappling with teen angst. With a foot clan, a street gang responsible for all the crimes, tries to silence April, she's rescued by the turtle Raphael, and makes friends with the others. A chance meeting with her boss leads to his son, Danny, an apprentice to the foot clan, to reveal the turtle's location to his boss, the Shredder. Splinter is captured, and the turtles and April are only able to escape with the help of a sporting goods-themed vigilante case. Casey Jones. They recuperate April's farm to heal and train. Leonardo works through the burden of leadership and is able to connect them to Splinter in spirit. Rallied, they go to rescue him. The Shredder tries to have Splinter killed, but he has been deprogramming Danny in secret. And with Casey's help, the two get him out and convince the other teens to leave the foot. Meanwhile, the Turtles are only barely able to hold their own against Shredder, who's able to play their anger against them. But when Splinter arrives, he plays on their shared backstory to do the same. Dan and his dad reconcile, and April settles. <laughs> I abridged a lot. There's a lot that happens in this movie, a lot of characters moving in different places, and if I went into it, it would take a very long time, so I didn't do that. I can't really do it justice. I'm going to, once again, be very upfront with my feelings towards this movie. I love this film. I watched it a lot as a child. I have vivid memories of specifically when I was out shopping with my parents and we got the entire trilogy on VHS. So I have a lot of love for this movie. I'd seen it before, probably with you at least once or twice. And going in, I was like, oh, this is going to be a nostalgia trip. You know, probably not going to hold up that well, but probably going to be okay. And I was wrong. It's really well edited. The music is good. The effects are how? The effects hold up so well. That's what you get when you get Jim Henson's company to do all your puppeteering and bodysuits. A lot of the people involved here are involved in Muppet Treasure Island and Muppet Christmas Carol. They're very clearly able to take a kind of silly premise in a silly world, but give it the grouse toss it deserves without being too heavy with it. The suits hold up incredibly well. There are a few times where the mouth movement of the turtles really does not match up well with the dialogue, and it's a little distracting, but beyond that... I don't really have any complaints as far as the effects go. And I also know that the sequel to this movie fixed a lot of those issues as well. On the flip side, the turtles are able to do flips and kung fu and stuff. Kung fu action, karate satisfaction. You have wide shots of this happening of like full martial arts choreography sequences in turtle suits. I've watched every season of Face Off. I know that it's really hard to make prosthetics that you can move around in, and they can do flips in them. They can move better in those suits than I can move now. Pretty impressive choreography considering some of the constraints that they were under. It's not going to hold up to some of the best kung fu movies coming out now, but I mean, it's almost 30 years old at this point. A lot of the way we film those sorts of scenes has changed, and they've been able to evolve quite a bit in that time. I think it does hold up as the structure of the fight scenes, a lot of them do a very good job of letting you know what the geography is of the scene. It's well put together and it shows they put in thought and effort into making it all flow well. 
Yeah, and not just the physicality of the fights, but also the dialogue and banter that's going on. They do a really good job of not breaking up the action too much, but they do leave some breathing room for comedy along the way, and they they do a really good job of weaving it in without it feeling shoehorned, both physical and verbal comedy. It's actually really impressive, because I know that there must have been a really big struggle with the production to find this balance between the much darker tone of the original comics and the much, much lighter tone of the 80s cartoon show, which were both incredibly popular, but with very different demographics. And I think they did a really good job splitting that difference. This movie takes a lot of inspiration from the first two or so issues of the comic. Uh, if you if you read through, you're like, oh, it's these scenes and these scenes just restructured to make it all make sense. And I think it improves on it in a lot of ways. The comics were basically just a goof project by Kevin Eastman and Peter Lard, who wanted to make fun of some other comics coming out at the time. Daredevil, New Mutants, Cerebus, Ronan, that kind of jazz. Yeah, the foot are literally a parody of the hand from Iron Fist and Daredevil and all that sort of stuff. If you've seen the Netflix shows, yeah, that. But Which, interesting here. Yeah, it's impressive. The parody film that came out 30 years prior to any of that got Ninja Cult way better than any of the Netflix shows did. I think a part of it is that both the comics and the movie don't waste a lot of time going... It's weird that there are ninjas and turtles and rats in science. They just kind of present them as is and then explore the ramifications on people's psyche and culture that comes out of that. I mean, sure, April sees the turtles and faints, but that's reasonable. And then they explain the backstory and then everything's fine. In the original comic, it's just Splinter explaining the backstory to the turtles who presumably already know it. And I like that the film starts with the turtles already as ninjas already doing their stuff. And we don't learn who they are until they're telling April. It's a really good way to structure that storytelling. Also, in that scene where they're kind of giving the turtles the backstory, I really like this halfway between flashback and narration thing that they're doing. I think it works really well. When they do this, there's kind of this black cloudiness at the edges and fuzziness to kind of denote flashback. Flashback, but in that blackness, you see adults, Splinter, and the turtles commenting on the story and things like that. I think it adds this really nice touch. Mm-hmm. Also, touching back on the not wasting time getting bogged down and why are there mutant turtles and just kind of letting it be, the film does a really great job of lampshading a lot of that too. There's a lot of New Yorkers in this film who interact with the turtles and some are a little confused at first but there's a lot of them who just completely brush it off and are totally inoculated to any of this weirdness going on around them. What the heck was that? Looked like sort of a big turtle in a trench coat. You're going to look out of you, right? I, I really like that. Going back to the reveal to April and, and telling her all this backstory, the end of that conversation between April and Shorter is also really interesting and well done because April, at the end of it, says, I'm not dreaming, am I? No, I'm afraid not. His tone and intonation at least lead me to believe my interpretation is that he is truly sorry for having to explain all of this to her. He knows the danger that it's going to put her in and how it's going to drag her into all of this trouble. To a certain extent, she was already involved because of her investigative reporting, but Splinter is sad that he has had to do this to her. Splinter 
is really effective here. He actually feels wise as opposed to being kind of just a stereotype. There is a soft gentleness to him. He's up there with the Uncle Ben's of the world. Yeah, there were a number of times where Jackson or I exclaimed during this film, this rat puppet is making me cry. There's a really good bit when Raphael is trying to deal with his anger where Splinter, instead of telling him, ah, don't be a jerk, he says, anger clouds the mind. Turned inward, it is an unconquerable enemy. You are unique among your brothers, for you choose to face this enemy alone. But as you face it, do not forget them, and do not forget me. Telling this person that I know you're going through something, we're here when you need us, and then giving him that space is a way more healthy way to let someone process something if they're not being too self-destructive. They literally have tears in Raph's eyes during that heart-to-heart with Splinter, and it's incredibly effective. Mm -hmm. I don't disbelieve these turtles for a minute, but these feel real. Part of it is how well the turtles are realized as teens. They act like teen boys do. They're super excited after their first win in a ninja fight at the beginning of the movie, and they're down the sewers, and they're celebrating with each other, and they're having a ball of laughs. They are, uh, like, obsessed with pizza and joking around. They have this sort of celebrity crush on April O'Neil. Raph is a little bit standoffish because he forgot his sigh, and he feels to a certain extent that he's failed because of that. They really do a great job of, like, yeah, these are just your typical teenage boys. They just happen to be giant anthropomorphic turtles. And also ninjas. It's the same reason that Spider-Man is so iconic and has has held up so long. It's because there are a lot of people who are able to relate to that experience and it works. Let's talk about April O'Neil. She's a good reporter. She's a babe. Yes. (laughs) We mentioned that they have a celebrity crush on her because, you know, she's pretty cool. But for Mikey, it's kind of, he keeps calling her a babe, but she's not particularly sexualized. They think of her as being hot, but a lot of that seems to come from them respecting her as a reporter, as being good at her job, as being assertive. Being charismatic and intelligent. Also caring about the citizens of New York. Mm -hmm. Um, Not just, you know, in a broad sense, but specifically. I really like that she goes and interviews Japanese Americans because they're being affected by this in a unique way. And speaking of not sexualizing April O'Neil, when she's mugged, She's being held down by these guys, but there's never a point in which it is made to seem like a sexy thing. Yeah, we never get treated to that male gaziness when April is being attacked. Yeah, and for the most part, April is shown wearing pretty sensible outfits. She's respectable and professional looking when she's on the job, and when she's in the department or on the farm, she dresses down a bit. Like, the sexiest outfit she wears is she has a pair of Daisy Dukes on when they're at the farm. And while she can't hold her own against the Foot Clan, obviously, because she's not like a trained ninja. She's never shown as being a damsel so much as she's just out of her weight class. She still tries to fight back with, you know, grabbing whatever she can, swinging her purse. And when she is in her element, she excels. She's really good at trying to get the police to actually look into what's going on with the foot and try and do something about it. Well, I've included everything in my statement, but I doubt very much that Chief Stearns is taking this possible connection seriously. To the point where the police commissioner, 
effectively has to blackmail her boss in order to get her to stop. And when she doesn't, her boss fires her. He's trying to hire her back, negotiates for a pay raise and a corner <laughs> office. You know that May Williams over at Channel 5 has her own office? You can have an office. Yeah, well, she has her own corner office. You can have a corner well, office. But she's also one of the highest paid field reporters in New York City. Now you are. You are a tough negotiator, Charles. There's also April's narration at the farm that I think adds a lot of, well, it adds a lot to the film. It's kind of framed as her keeping a journal or a log while they're at the farmhouse, almost writing a letter to someone back home. And it gives you a lot of insight into how she views the turtles and Casey to a certain extent. And I like getting that more internal perspective that I don't think would have been as easy to come by if not for that sort of narration. I will say she kind of fades into the background a bit in the fifth act when they go back to New York and fight the Foot Clan, but admittedly that's a lot of punch-ups, so she can't really do much at the time. It's not a huge problem, but I kind of wish she'd gotten, I don't know, something to do. Climb to the top of the tall thing and get over her fear of heights or whatever. Yeah, there w could have been a possibility where she scraped together a camera crew and tried to do some reporting on the situation as it was happening, or whether she went in to try and help Danny. That would also deepen her connection with Casey Jones. Mm. Speaking of Casey Jones, one of my, I guess, only real complaints about the story's structure is I feel like Casey Jones gets to be a hero a lot, possibly more than the Turtles do sometimes. I wish he had a little less prominence. I think if he didn't win that first fight with Raphael, that would have done a lot to ease that. His major points are the fight with Raphael, coming to the rescue and the antique store fight, and then he's the one who fights Tatsu, the second underneath Shredder, and helps get Splinter out, and then he's the one who, oops, I did a murder. <laughs> <laughs> crushes Shredder with the garbage truck. Oops! It also be from me reading the comics where you get the impression that this is the character that they wish this was all about and the turtles were just kind of a, a joke they made that now they're stuck with for some of it. I mean, not all of it, but like that's kind of a vibe I get. The turtles kind of spin in place being turtles where he gets to grow and change and settle down and stop being a vigilante and have a kid. And Part of that is that he can do that because he's human. He doesn't have to hide himself and kind of can just fade into the world. The turtles are sort of stuck because they are other. That's true. And I, I do think that the film kind of does a little bit to kind of take Casey down a few pegs. He is very much a lunk in this movie. <laughs> yes, and I actually kind of do like his character. He's doofy and annoying, but in a very heartwarming way that makes me think he's well-written. There's a really great bit where they realize he's agoraphobic. You're claustrophobic. And... You want a fist in the mouth? You've never even looked at another guy before. Yes. <laughs> Speaking of possible queer coding. Yeah, let's let's talk about Danny. I think in a lot of ways, Danny is kind of meant to be a parallel to the Turtles. His teenage struggles are very similar to what Leo and Raph are going through through parts of the film. Unfortunately, his father isn't quite as equipped as Splinter is to help him through it, and thus he is captivated by this pseudo-family that the Foot has created with uh, the Shredder as the father. And through Danny, we're able to take a look at the perversion of the same family dynamics that bring strength to the Turtles. We did talk about a little bit of queer coding. I will say it's not terribly overt. Most of it is 
kind of how Danny looks. He's very soft-faced and soft-spoken. And he reminds me of Ian from Shameless. That's a big part of it. Yeah. He doesn't really espouse a lot of the same macho tendencies that a lot of the other members of the foot do. We never see him fighting or training to, to be a foot clan member, but he does wear the headband. Another part of it is also just like his relationship with his dad feels like a lot of father-son dynamics in queer coming-of-age narratives. The whole feeling of restlessness and finding a new group to hang out with and eventually having a reconciliation. There's also a scene in the film where Danny is literally hiding in a closet. There's that. It's not the strongest case, but I think it's a valid reading. It might also just be us reading things into the plot. There aren't any openly queer characters. There there aren't a lot of women. There aren't all that many people of color Mm -hmm. in the heroic cast. While we're here, I don't want to get too much into it because I haven't done the research for it yet, but the property this is based on has um, issues of portrayals of Japanese culture and uh, Japanese diaspora and stuff with that. And look at this rope. This can only be the work of ninjas, the ancient band of Japanese warriors. And how can you tell that from the rope, Professor? Well, look for yourself. It's made in Japan. The film wasn't necessarily the worst about this, but it doesn't necessarily fix a lot of the problems. I'm just going to put that out there and acknowledge that's a problem. Part of that was due to the time period. There was a shift in the racism and stereotyping of the Japanese as more and more of their consumer electronics were coming to the United States, especially cars and more directly competing with American companies. And there was a lot of tension around that in the late 80s, early 90s. There's definitely some of that that is seen in the film. We've talked a lot about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Let's go ahead and move on to actually our vote. Yeah, we talked about it. Spawn is not moving on. For a variety of reasons that we will get into into the second half of the podcast. But due to the nature of Spawn, we felt that if you want to nope out, that's totally cool. To a certain extent, we do too. Yeah. Um, trigger warning for sexual assault related stuff. You know, we'll try not to get into it too much, but... Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is moving on and Spawn is going to be relegated. If you'd like to stick around for a plot summary and our discussion about it, feel free. If you are not up for that, that's totally fine and we will love to see you back next week. With that out of the way, this is the point of no return. We're going to be talking about... Some icky stuff. If you want to know about, go now. 1997 Spawn. Al Simmons, a former Marine turned paramilitary covert operative, has finally grown a moral compass. His handler, Jason Wynn, convinces him to do one more job. Unfortunately, he's double-crossed and murdered during the mission. After his death, he's sent to hell and offered a deal. Lead the armies of hell against heaven, and he can see his wife Wanda again. Simmons agrees, but as with all deals with the devil, there's a catch. He's now a hell spawn burnt beyond recognition, and returns to Earth five years after his death. Al finds that Wanda has remarried and now has a daughter. Soon after, Simmons encounters two mysterious individuals, Violator the Clown and Cogliostro, each trying to steer Spawn to use his powers for evil or good, respectively. Spawn, while seeking revenge for his murder by Wynn and associates, finds out that Wynn has developed a new bioweapon, Heat-16, that the Warmonger plans to release worldwide. The forces of Hell want this to happen to bring about the apocalypse, leading Spawn and the Clown to <clears throat> coming to blows. The Clown wins, but rather than finish him off, leaves Spawn to help win. Cogliostro then helps Spawn better control his powers, and Spawn goes to confront Win and the Clown. Spawn succeeds in preventing the release of Heat-16, but he and Cogliostro are dragged down to Hell. They fought off hordes of Hell Spawn and escape, but are followed by the Clown back to Earth. Spawn wins the final confrontation by decapitating the Clown. Win is arrested, and Spawn decides to do as much good as he can, rather than give in to vengeance.
That was a pain to piece together. This movie's plot is nigh incomprehensible. Even if it didn't have all the icky stuff, like, it's just not well made. This film can move the plot forward, it can do character development, but it can't do both at the same time. And most of the time it decides to do neither in a scene. It also really liked these scene transitions that have overwrought visual effects that, you know, like, oh, they're so cool and edgy and fiery, it's the 90s. It pulls you out of the movie, especially when the transition isn't from Earth to hell or something, it's just from one alleyway to some office somewhere. Yeah, this is a very 90s movie. It looks like it was edited in iMovie today by someone who has opened iMovie once in their life. And is also a very edgy 16-year-old. There's also a lot of very unfortunately aged CG in this film. Oh boy. From the clown's demon form to the cape. The most important iconography of Spawn, basically. Mm. Also, the ruler of hell that Spawn makes a deal with, uh, Mel Boglia, is very, very poorly animated. Think the cutscenes from a video game about this time, and that's kind of what we're looking at. Yeah. As far as visual effects go, it feels like they had the budget of a Buffy episode, but had to stretch it for a feature-length film. And if this were made, say, at the start of the 90s, I might be willing to give that a bit of a pass because they are rendering whole digital worlds, whole digital armies, whole digital creatures, but this is five years after Jurassic Park made dinosaurs look real. And thankfully, we have that excellent narration to tell us where and when we are. That makes it all much more clear. There's a number of scenes with Cogliostro doing voiceover, talking about heaven and hell and what's going on with that, but it doesn't really do a good job of helping you understand what the hell is going on. A lot of it feels very ham-fisted in because they realized they were going to have to edit down the movie a lot because it stunk. This film is barely over a hundred minutes, and typically when they cut a movie down like that. It's to make it so that it can play quite often in a short theatrical run to try and make some of the money back. I also really feel like they cut the wrong stuff. There is a bit where Allison is flashing back to conversation with his wife that we never saw, which means they probably filmed at least a few scenes with him and his wife developing their characters and their relationships so we would care about them, and those scenes got left on the cutting room floor. But we have a lot of scenes of endless, endless bullets going towards Spawn, who has a magic suit of armor that makes bullets meaningless. We don't need those scenes. There's also clashing art styles in this film. To give you a, a idea of what this film looks like for the most part, as far as like color choices and light and whatnot, it looks a lot like RoboCop, which honestly is not a bad choice for how dark and gritty this film is supposed to be. But when you layer on top this huge bright red cape and these neon green demon powers, it looks real bad. I think if the whole film had been that hypersaturated speed racer kind of thing where nothing looks real, it would have worked a lot better because we would accept the non-reality of everything and would also accept that the CGI failures are intentional maybe. I will praise one thing about this. It's not so much the CGI and more just the way they use it. A lot of the demons will change forms based on need very fluidly in ways that makes me feel like their forms aren't particularly locked down. The character is suddenly growing taller or growing a pair of claws. feels like these are beings that operate on very different rules than Earth rules, and I like that. That's a good visual design. Let's talk about Priest. Oh, gods. 
So Priest in this is your basic femme fatale, a colleague of Wynne and Simmons. And she's the one who deals the fatal blow to Simmons before he gets sent to hell. And then five years later, she is the first person that Spawn takes revenge on. There are a number of issues with her. First off, she doesn't exist in the comics. In the comics, it's a black man called Chapel who does the killing. I understand why they couldn't use Chapel. Chapel was created by Rob Liefeld, and the whole point of Image Comics, at least at the time, not so much anymore, is that everything is creator-owned and controlled. So unless Rob Liefeld signed off on it, Chapel wasn't appearing in this movie. So the character got whitewashed. At least they tried to do it a little bit more interestingly and replace the man with a woman. To a certain extent, I can understand that impulse, but... The woman we got in Priest is so generic and stereotypical for this type of character. In her final fight scene with Spawn, she's running around in a latex bodysuit and corset. And she doesn't seem to have any kind of interiority. Like, I don't know why she is the way she is, what led her down this path. I never at any point get the sense that she cares about her co-workers or the evil plan or any of this. She seems to just exist to be a sexy boobs with gun person. Yeah, and be evil for evil's sake. Which, in a movie with lots of demons and stuff, I'd be okay with if she was also a demon. But no, she's a person. She presumably has parents. She presumably, like, went to fourth grade. She presumably had spelling bees and maybe a crush at some point. I mean, we're also talking about evil for evil's sake. We can talk about Jason Wynn. Oh, he's so very miscast. Martin Sheen was completely wasted on this role. He doesn't feel menacing. He feels like middle management, not the guy who's running the apocalypse. To be fair, he is kind of getting used by the clown in order to bring about the end of the world, and he is supposed to be sacrificed to do so. I didn't mention it in the summary, but Violator convinces Wynn to set up a device that as soon as his heartbeat stops, all of the bombs holding Heat 16 go off. And then the clown is trying to goad Spawn into killing Wynn for attacking his family and as revenge for killing him and Spawn decides not to do that. I didn't go down that route partially because it meant having to explain some of the family dynamics going on with Spawn and they're just not compelling. Wanda is a plot device. She's not a character. Mm -hmm. She gets remarried to Terry, one of Simmons' best friends and also worked for the company. Five years later, he's kind of the face of this paramilitary organization. I know we've been covering up problems with our missions overseas. I really can't keep lying like this, sir. Lying? He eventually realizes, nah, I'm, I can't lie about this anymore. It's too big and sends an email to the press and then the family is attacked. Mm -hmm. But the movie does a terrible job at making us care about any of it. Exploring the anguish of someone whose wife has moved on and who still loves her even though she thinks he's dead can be compelling. That's the plot of many movies about soldiers who go off to war and are assumed dead or lost at sea kind of narratives. And this does not do it well. Partially because Wanda and Al say a few words to each other at most before Al dies. So I don't really care about the relationship. And she doesn't have a lot of personality or character. So I don't really, so I don't really care about 
her the most as a person. Which is also really frustrating because this is actually done pretty well in the first few issues of the Spawn comic. In the comic, Spawn is actually able to assume a human form, not the form of Al Simmons, but some blonde-haired white dude. I think part of it is because, oh, he can't figure out his powers and this is like the default. And he goes and visits Wanda to try and see what, what's going on and he passes out and they take him in and talk to him and he tells them what's going on but obfuscating that he's talking about Wanda being his ex-wife and how he's he's struggling with how to feel about things and the way Al comes to terms with his wife moving on is actually pretty healthy and compelling. She's remarried. She has a kid, which is something that she and Al were never able to realize. And she's happy and he doesn't want to ruin that by trying to insert himself into her life again and making all this I'm back from the dead and a hell spawn and made this deal with the devil and complicate things. So it's really sad that that's something that even the comic got right, the film can't do. Credit where credit is due. There is a scene where Spawn helps the daughter after she's fallen down at school. I don't remember what happens. She, they have a scene. They interact. Whatever. Because the film slows down enough to actually let that scene play out and the acting is good enough, I'm like, oh, I actually care. I want I want these people to be happy, even if I know that's probably not going to happen because of the various situations for their lives. I cared for 30 whole seconds. Mm-hmm. I know that there were a lot of fanboys out there who were not going to care about this compelling character stuff and just wanted to see really awesome fight scenes. But that's also the, something that the film does not do well. Nope. We've already talked about how Spawn has a healing factor, and so most of his run-ins with humans are not compelling because they don't have any stakes. He'll just heal all the wounds, he'll kill and or get away with whatever he needs to get away with, and that's that. In this universe, you can only kill a demon by cutting off its head. Yeah. Sure, fair enough. Yeah. Then, a uh, little bit later on in the film, we have the clown going into its full demon form and fighting Spawn in Rat City, which is a bunch of alleyways inhabited by a number of poor people of the city. The way the fight scene is structured is so bad. They're fighting on the rooftops and they go to like the fire escapes and then they're down the alley and there's a number of innocent bystanders that are getting in the way and getting hurt. But the way it keeps jumping back and forth with all these jump cuts, it's trying to have this eight foot tall demon hide in the shadows and play it up like it's a monster movie movie and it's a very poorly paced fight scene the fight scenes are also hindered by the hellspawn armor thing being able to manifest weapons and other stuff basically at will with no clearly defined limit so it is never clear what the stakes are or what options exist for any given character in a fight scene they seem to sort of punch each other until they stop and then sometimes they can't punch is good. There's literally a scene in the fourth issue of the comic where Violator and Spawn are just going at it so hard they're like ripping each other's arms off and they're still just fighting because there are no stakes. The devil himself has to come up to earth and tell them just stop this isn't doing anything. Uh, and kind of spells out the situations like, Spawn, you're trapped. You're going to do what I say. And then he turns to the clowns like, you, you're a complete failure. You were just running around murdering people when you should have been manipulating Spawn into doing what we want. I'm punishing you. You're grounded. I'm taking away your powers and you're stuck as a clown. So the deal that is honestly not very clear in the movie, I'm not quite sure what all the trade-offs are per se because of how poorly edited all those scenes are isn't helped by a number of a number of powerful demon lords shouting the name Wanda. I'm sorry to all the Wandas out there, but 
Wanda is not a name that I feel like has a lot of gravitas. Nothing pulls me out of an experience more than a poorly CGI demon shouting, You can have Wanda again. If you need my army, you can see Wanda again. It would have been fine to say you're going to have your wife again. And while we're here, it's still shitty to say you can have your wife. It's you can be with her. People are not possessions, even if you marry them. I mean, admittedly, he's the devil, but still. Being in people's possessions, do you want to, do you want to hit the clown? <sighs> yeah, let's talk about the clown. Here, he's played by John Leguizamo, which means the clown won't shut up, which does not help its case at all. Um, if you want a better movie where John Leguizamo plays the devil, uh, go look for Christian Mingle 2 on the equalizers.podbeam.com. We've also mentioned that he has kind of two names in this movie. You got the clown and also the violator. His moniker, that's the thing he shouts triumphantly before going into his uh, full demon form. God, I hate this character. Super crass, lot of sexual innuendo, gross, disgusting. I'm not gonna lie, a lot of it felt like they wanted to get Danny DeVito to play this character. Think of Danny DeVito's character from It's Always Sunny and dial it up to 12. You've, you've got the clown. I'm the trash man. I come out, I throw trash all over, all over the ring. And then I start eating garbage. And while him making crass jokes and all this stuff would be unpleasant but survivable, there's a really, really, really shitty bit. After the alley fight, he announces his intent to go to Al's house and do a sexual violence to Wanda. And Cagliastro is like, no, Al Simmons, you shouldn't go stop that from happening. Don't give in to your violence. The war between heaven and hell depends on the choices we make. And those choices require sacrifice. That's the test. And it's really, really shitty that this guy who's supposed to represent the good moral path is saying, no, you should let this sexual assault happen because that's what heaven would want or whatever. It's so gross and not even in a fun way. It's just such an icky, shitty trope. And I hate it so much. God, I hate this movie. At one point, they have Al's family all tied up and and the clown licks Wanda's face and says one of the most racist lines I've ever heard. Uh, it's not in the episode because nope, not doing that. If you're really interested, you can go ahead and sit through Spawn to listen to it, but we're not putting it here. Yeah. This is unfortunately the first superhero film to have a black lead that was actually based on a comic book. 1993 had Meteor Man, but there was no comic book that was a completely original character for the silver screen. And this predates Blade by a year. Spawn is mostly either has the mask up or is covered in these burn prosthetics so you can't really tell what they look like. It's kind of the Princess and the Frog problem where it's cool to have a black protagonist, but also they spend most of their time not being visually black. While it's, I guess, technically an opportunity for black people to be represented on screen, they seem to want to represent black people as little as possible. We have already talked about the way that Priest has been whitewashed. However, Terry is also black in the comics and they whitewashed him here. He's played by D.B. Sweeney, which is unfortunate because he also voices Aladar in Dinosaur. This movie is so bad, it makes me find Aladar less hot. There's that. And then we also have to talk about the way this film treats Wanda. We've already talked that she's kind of establishes this object to be one for Al, both textually in the film and also because she doesn't have a lot of character or personality. She's kind of just a plot device. But there's also the way that she's inherently sexualized. 
because it's just Wanda and Priest, every female character we have is super sexualized in this film for no reason. With the exception of San, who is a child and therefore doesn't apply, thank God. But we do have to talk about the way Hollywood very often sexualizes and fetishizes black women. Uh, and it's no exception here, especially with a number of the ways that the clown talks about Wanda, or even when, as he is murdering Simmons, he makes sure that Wanda will be taken care of. It's just bad. I really, really hate this movie. It has a single redeeming quality for me. It has a bitchin' soundtrack. Which it doesn't even use well. It it does not, unfortunately. But this is exactly the sort of thing that I was super into when I was around, like, 16, and there's a nostalgia factor there for me. It, it's got a really good lineup of bands, and I'm super into it, and I am really frustrated that it's attached to this awful trash fire of a movie. The music doesn't do it for me, because it's not really my thing, but uh, we've criticized this film on almost every level. We haven't even gotten into how aggressively 90s it is, and how bad some of the visual metaphors are, and how there's a superfluous kid and a superfluous dog who do not need to be in this plot. But a thing that I assume no one's going to talk about for this movie is that it makes fun of Satanists, and that bothers me. There's a scene where they're in a graveyard and Al is doing the whole, oh, I'm dead, I'm sad about that whole thing, where there are some Satanists who are trying to, like, conjure the devil in a very cliche, satanic panic-style way, like something out of the chick track, and uh, the clown makes fun of them for, you know, not being actually having of any power or dark influence or whatever. And it frustrates me that that's the way it takes this, because these are the kids who are going to be reading Spawn, presumably. These are the kind of people who are drawn to this kind of thing because they're a product of the rampant consumerism of the 80s that reduced everything in America to having some sort of price value. So why wouldn't you try to seek some sort of spiritual validation in a practice wherein you could theoretically sell your soul and gain the benefits? I, I get why that would be an appealing thing. Yeah, it pretty much guarantees that you have some inherent worth. Yeah, and not a particularly healthy way to approach things, but in an era of consumerism, I get why that would be appealing. And it's frustrating to me that this film doesn't have empathy for even the kind of people who produce its own success. Also, Cagliostro is just not very compelling. Which is really sad. He seems like he could be a really cool character. He was co-created by Neil Gaiman. He wrote the character in his initial appearance in issue 9 of Spawn. If you need a reference point, imagine Sam Elliott's character in Ghost Rider. Kinda, yeah. Yeah. But uh, less cool. And less western and more medieval. Mm-hmm. It's also really sad because that was the actor's last role. Nickel Williamson plays Cogliostro. It wasn't his last role because he died, it was because he gave up acting after this. I don't know whether it was because Spawn was so bad, but I would not be surprised if it was. And from what we learned about him, he was a pretty established, talented actor. He was once described by John Osborne as the greatest actor since Marlon Brando. He was described by Samuel Beckett as touched by genius and viewed by many critics as the hamlet of his generation. This dude's in Spawn 1997. I make note of that 1997 because as we speak, Todd McFarlane is trying to get another one of these off the ground. It's being produced by Bloomhouse who throw about $5 at creators and tell them that there's a ghost in it, whether or not they want there to be. To be fair, Todd McFarlane has lots of money and is tossing it at the production, so 
we'll see. I don't have a whole lot of faith in his ability to write or direct. Jamie Foxx and Jeremy Renner are currently signed on for it. It's still in pre-production, so who who knows whether it'll actually get made. That happens. Sometimes a disaster hits. Yeah. I read through about as much as Spawn as I could stomach. Uh, issue 5 gets into some really dark stuff, and I was done. Yeah, you told me, and I was like, no, I, I'm impressed you made it that far. But if you are looking for something about the forces of heaven and hell going up against each other and moral grayness and that, even the really big, chonky chains and spikes aesthetic, go play Darksiders 1 and 2. They will give you what you're looking for in a very Legend of Zelda-esque adventure structure. And if you really want, toss on the Spawn soundtrack you're going to have a much better time. And if you desperately need that comic goodness, there is so much Ghost Rider out there. I'm a recurring guest on a podcast where one of the recurring characters is Shoba Mirza, who's a side character from, from Ghost Rider, who instead of having like a car or a motorcycle, has a woolly mammoth that she sets on fire and she has four arms that are all carrying weapons and are also on fire. Ghost Rider is so good. This is like if Ghost Rider was just bad in every way. Ah. <sighs> All right, I am done talking about this piece of crap. Let's talk about what we've got coming up next week. Huge change of pace. We are moving from the world of 90s comics to the world of black and white comic strips. We have Popeye versus the Peanuts movie. Huh, that seems pleasant and wholesome. Yeah, it's going to be a great palate cleanser for this week. Oh boy, will it be. Anyway, as we've established, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is moving on. Spawn goes back to hell where it belongs. Go to hell and take your friends with you! Make sure to catch our next much lighter episode. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Podbean, and Spotify. Once again, this has been the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.